My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Exposed. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us this week. Before we get started, just wanted to let you know we had some technical difficulties, so the audio quality this week isn't as good as it normally is, for which we apologize. We hope you'll still enjoy this episode of Anamorphology. Thanks for listening. So what did we read this week? Ah, the capture! (laughs) Why do you say, ah, the capture, Jenny? Uh, Yeah, so this book was basically my first boyfriend. Not Jake, the book. Hopefully (laughs) not Tamarash, either. No. <laughs> no, I, I love this book and I was so afraid that I wouldn't love it going through it, going through it at this age. But I did and I teared up the end and it was wonderful and I want to know what you thought of it, Gray. But first, do you want to give us a brief summary of what happens in this book? Sure. There were a lot of gross morphs. That's <laughs> the big takeaway. Uh, the first one is Jake decides he's going to morph into a cockroach, which he does by himself at his house and uh, he almost gets caught in a roach motel. Then he and the Animorphs all morph into cockroaches in order to visit a meeting of the Sharing, which is the Yerk cult. And they discover that the Yerks are currently infesting a hospital. And then they're planning to use that to take over a powerful politician. So the Animorphs turn into flies to enter the hospital and try and stop this plot. And they discover in the hospital a jacuzzi tub full of Yerks. So they try to destroy the jacuzzi, but in the process, Jake falls in and he gets infested by a yerk named Tamrash, who used to be the yerk who is infesting Jake's older brother, Tom. Um, Tamrash, not a very smart yerk and not a particularly nice one either. So they're uh, escaping from the hospital and Jake is panicking because they don't know that he's been infested by the yerk. But uh, Axe figures it out. And so the Animorphs decide they're going to keep Jake in a hut in the woods for three days until the Yerk dies because he can't get exposure to the Kindrona beans or whatever that keep them alive. So they lock Jake in a hut in the woods and then they protect him while they're all in their different Animorph forms. And finally the Yerk dies uh, and Jake is saved. I stopped taking notes halfway through because I was so into the story that I forgot that I was reading it for a podcast. Yes! Yeah. It was really good. Also, I think that somehow Applegate heard me say on last week's podcast... She probably did, yeah. These are the grossest morphs so far. (laughs) And then said, hold my beer. (laughs) Yeah, that was my first thought. I was like, this is just going to get worse and worse. Gray's not going to like this. I I (laughs) wrote down the line where Cassie's like, is it possible to die of the willies? And I was like, yeah, this is Gray's question, (laughs) Also, there's a fly on the cover. That's like bad enough. That is not the worst. That is not the worst You, They don't prepare you for the cockroach. No, we get to roach. And I was like, oh no, Grace could be horrified. She knows there's a fly coming and they're already moving a roach. Exactly. And there's nothing better, right? Nothing else great happens. Cassie gets an owl, but we don't. Yeah, it's just the bugs. And it's cockroaches and flies. Yeah. Ew, ew, ew. (laughs) So gross. (laughs) But good job, Applegate, for making this even worse somehow. Mm -hmm. Oh, he also morphs the ant later on, and someone else morphs a flea. So there are four different bug morphs in this book. 
Yes, and he talks about having four different bug morphs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is just as horrified by it as I am. So me and Jake, <laughs> but this it was so good. The adventures were so good. The friendships were so good. There's a lot in this book. We know how we all feel about it, <laughs> which is pretty great. Yeah. So where do you want to start, Jenny? Let's start at the opening capers because we've been talking about that a little bit. It's a little different this time. Yeah, we were asking last time, like, will they ever grapple with the dangerousness of it? I feel like they're still not grappling with it. Jake is taking precautions. He's like, okay, I'm home alone. The door is shut. And then, of course, his parents almost walk in on him. And then he walks into a Roche Motel. And you're like, why? <laughs> why did you not think of a better way to do this? But... Cassie establishes the rule that I've been waiting for them to establish, which is never more for the first time by yourself. Don't be stupid. It's such a good point. Though, it's a little hypocritical because she never got told off for doing that squirrel thing in her book. I don't know if Tobias ever told anyone about that, but that was way more dangerous than what Jake does here. It's true. I do think it's a good rule to have for them. Finally, I mean, Cassie has all along been sort of asking good questions. She and Marco ask good questions about how the morphing works and what the rules should be. And I think this this is a great point where my note is Cassie saying what we're all thinking. This was very dumb, especially after he's been scolding everyone else in their books for doing exactly what he does. He was um, in a safer environment than like Marco in the alley, but still almost not a hot. great plan. I also thought that the transition from that morph was it was the first time we've seen this kind of transition out of the caper where he's stuck doesn't know what's about to happen and then it's like and now he's telling his friends about it later that was really interesting i noticed that really well done because at that point i feel like there probably would just have been anticlimactic if they just narrated that and Mm. it was great to have it in the conversation with everyone and it creates a little extra suspense because then you're like why don't are we continuing the story why are we in this conversation now right it keeps the pacing going i love jake's line immediately after that at the beginning of that chapter where he's like yeah and I, i was i was trapped i couldn't move very frustrating. I'm just imagining him saying that with his serious face, like trying to convey it. And everyone's like, Jake, you idiot. So let's talk about Jake, actually. It's amazing to me that all we will ever see of Jake is in this book in some way. Mm, it's like, on. Maybe not all of his strengths. He does make a bunch of silly mistakes in here, yeah. but a lot of his flaws and the things that he grapples with are all here right from the beginning in a way that it wasn't in the first book. One of the things that is so, so Jake to me, the way that he... Uh, does such a great job of managing the other people in the group, but does a terrible job of caring for himself. So he he even thinks about directly, I was thinking about asking Marco for help, but everybody needed a break. We had all been through so much, and yet he doesn't apply that same thinking to himself, that he needs a break, that he needs support, right? And he also has this idea that I don't think we ever really understand why, but he thinks because Tom is his brother, he needs to make the call. He he, he had, He's taking this extra sense of responsibility about it, mm-hmm. which to me seems a little bit irrational, right? So he, because he's of his personal involvement, he's like stubborn. And later, even though everyone kind of knows it, he won't let himself just say, I don't want to do it because of my brother. He, yeah. he can't do that, even though they're all aware that that's what's going on. I think it's less he feels like he has responsibility because it's his brother and more he wants to keep all the responsibility for himself so that he has the decision-making power because he's nervous about letting other people approach the Tom situation. Like He doesn't know what decision he'll make about it if it comes down to it, but he really doesn't want someone else making that decision. I read it more as similar to his 
uh, conversations with Cassie during her book. Yeah. Where, because she was the one who had the dream, who had the strongest yeah. connection, that it, it had to be her decision to bring everybody else into danger. And it felt like he was saying the same thing to himself here. This is my brother. I know the most about it. I'm the most connected to it. So I have to be the one to make the decision to bring everybody else in. I mean, I think it's a good point that he's very protective of Tom and Tom's health and safety as opposed to the Yerk's health and safety. And and saying, you know, I, I don't want him to get hurt, even though I have to make this decision. So it did it just felt more like he was doing what he did to Cassie. The, somebody has yeah. to make the decision. I think it's a mix of both. Yeah. I think yeah. there is hesitation to let anyone else. And he does do the way the book ends, is right at the very end when he calls Tom and gives him some hope. Is a li- he, he admits it's a little bit selfish, so he moves a little bit in the right direction. Towards... But he does it with everyone there. Exactly. With everyone's buy-in, exactly. with backup. So is... that's actually a really good sign. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure they'll ever quite grow beyond the opening capers. <laughs> Maybe they will. I don't remember that clearly. But just because they need that for like book structure reasons. Mm-hmm. But it was also, it was bookended by Jake interacting with Tom in this kind of like, oh, it's a normal these like normal dinner scenes Mm -hmm. which we don't usually get a lot of Mm -hmm. and it's a lot it's a lot worse it's terrible the the kind of mind games of oh it seems so normal but a couple things are a little different but not different enough that you could really know something was wrong yeah and I think I mean I've mentioned extensively that this was the first book I read that I loved of this series and I think part of it was just that I had one but read one book I was like introduced and then I really had the chance to fall for it But I think also that contrast of like very, very recognizable home life with this very insidious thing that he has to fight, that just really resonated with me. That was very powerful. And I also, (laughs) this is probably not why it resonated, but everything that Jake's family eats in this story, I was like, oh, my family would have eaten that. (laughs) I mean, my mom like mostly cooked our dinners. We didn't get a lot of takeout, but like the chicken and the potatoes and the veggies was like very classic in my house. Well, that leads me to an important question, Jenny. (laughs) Is this book why you love Wheaties so much? No, no, I swear it is not. I would love to be able to say that it was, although that would be deeply weird. But no, I did not remember that Wheaties were in here, though I do eat Wheaties every morning for breakfast, and I'm very distressed that a lot of grocery stores don't carry them anymore because they've been part of my daily routine for like 15, 20 years. But are you sure that Wheaties (laughs) came before Animorphs? I am not. But it was the cereal that my mom bought. Like, I don't think I ever suggested it to her. Right. Well, Wheaties, if you want to sponsor this podcast, please reach out. Oh, yeah. Out. I would be super into that. If you want to send me some free boxes of Wheaties just so I can sample them, that would be great. I was really happy that we got some more perspectives. I thought we'd resolved the question of Jake's size, but we had not. <laughs> because, so he first says that he's big for his age. And I was like, okay, so he's kind of contradicting Marco a little bit. Like, Marco didn't actually say he's not big, but he said he seems bigger than he is. But then... Juan, when they're playing basketball, is like, you big oaf, you should be playing football. And I was like, what? What is going on? It's a major growth spurt. <laughs> I think some time has passed. This is maybe it's the actually, first book where some time has passed because because of the update we get about Marco. Yeah. His dad, dad is, his new job is working out. Like, they're in a new apartment. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that basketball scene, though, because okay. Jake, Jake says, let me practice my tackling on you directly to Juan. <laughs> it's... Not something that the, the whole comic kind of scene, I don't think it's something that uh, a straight 90s teen would say to his friend. You know, since we mentioned that, when I read these books for the first time, as I've mentioned before, 
I was not looking at it through the lens of like, ooh, are any of these characters, other than the obvious canonical pairings, like into each other. And after reading this book, I'm starting to think, we suggested last time that Marco might be into Jake. I'm kind of sold on it. Like, and yeah, he Jake brings up the Greek wrestling thing, and Marco's really quick to be like, oh, ew, yeah, gross. It's a little, you know, like protesting too much. Exactly. Like, I don't want sweaty men pressed against me. I'm like, really, Marco? But the other thing was that Jake keeps calling him my friend. And I was like, does Jake know that Marco wants more? And he's like reinforcing the role that he, want, that he wants Marco to be in. I think he's like letting him down easy. Yeah. The Greek wrestling was particularly striking, I think. Yeah. While we're talking about shipping that is not really justified by the books, <laughs> I think Marco flirts with Axe a little bit when he pretends to fall over. He's like, oh no, look, my two legs, it's not enough. And Axe is like, yeah, I knew, I knew it. <laughs> I love the speculation about whether Axe doesn't have a sense of humor or if it's just really, really dry. Right. But yeah, I was I was telling Gray that I was going on Tumblr to talk about the podcast and I en- ended up stumbling upon a huge like Axe Marco shipping community. So it's out there. It's, it's out there. Yeah, people are into Axe Amazing. Marco. It, I mean, they're, they're the fifth and sixth wheel. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah. There were a lot of really good relationship moments, something yeah. else that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um particularly between Cassie and Jake. Um, There's a lot of great moments where they're checking in on each other. Cassie holds him accountable in a way that nobody else does. That was very sweet. And there were also some really good friendship moments that I think we really haven't had a sense of them as a cohesive group Mm -hmm. because each book, as we've been getting introduced to the premise and the, the different plots, it's been kind of one-off relationships, Marco and Rachel, how do they interact? And, you know, Tobias and Rachel or Cassie and Jake. And this was the first time I felt that we really saw them as a group Mm. at the end. And I loved it very much. Yeah, I really liked when Cassie was holding Jake accountable and probably Marco, maybe Tobias. It's like, oh, Jake's in trouble. I was like, they are so going out. This is just 13-year-olds going out. I'm going to lay the question to rest. Right. I don't think it would be very recognizable to us as, like, yes, a romantic relationship, but... Well, I mean, they're they're 13. They don't know yeah. what they're doing. But it's uh, it's very cute. And that was right before she turns into a fly, and they have to go through that whole horrible thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, like, it was Tobias who does the thought speak. Um, Jake, I think this is the point where you just say yes, ma'am, which is oh, excellent right. advice, okay. Tobias. Well done. <laughs> I really liked the description... We get so many of these wonderful no-homo descriptions. And this description of Marco was, Cassie says a lot of the girls at school think he's cute. I wouldn't know. He is completely incapable of assessing the aesthetics of another male. It would be impossible for him to know. Yeah. No, how would he know? I think his second attempt at describing Rachel is an improvement over the first (laughs) book, where he says, most guys would say Rachel is prettier. Personally, I don't think of her that way because she's my cousin. Which is still a little bit of a weird way to put that. (laughs) They're still trying to communicate the fact that she's pretty. We've been through all five of the original Animorphs now, so we're back at Jake. And I really liked how this book made sure to, like, update us on the things that all the others had been going through. Like, Mm. we find out about Marco's dad's new job and his apartment and how things are different for Marco now, but he doesn't want the others to know. We find out that Tobias maybe is doing a little better. He seems a little more at peace. Mm. Um, we check in on like the Jake Cassie thing. We find out that Axe is learning some idioms. <laughs> <laughs> Prince yeah. Jake says it's cool. Right. He, <laughs> um, and then he picks up Yeehaw, 
when they become flies. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, and then the, I guess we don't really check in with Rachel, but she didn't have as much of an ongoing source of angst yet. I feel like hers, we saw a little more of it last book with like her sort of warrior nature. There was a good part where he says something like, you know, Marco would say that Rachel is like totally gung-ho about the fight. Mm-hmm. So it shows a little bit more understanding of the situation than, I thought he was than just even Cassie Marco's does. Phrasing, right, but, but okay. I think I think he's sort of saying this is like one way to look at it, yeah. but maybe he knows her a little bit better. And I did like that we got to see her insane shopping logic. She's right about the shopping logic, but I have I, I have a problem with the way that she approaches that whole thing. Yeah. Look at the name of the store. It might as well scream fat middle-aged ladies. Do you want to tell your mom you think she's fat? Yeah. Like, it felt very like what they would say. Yeah, I guess. We live in a fat-phobic society, and particularly 20 years ago. I did like yeah. how she had to explain what a sale sign looks like. <laughs> I mean, are all sales signs those colors? I thought she, like, knew the sales signs for that particular department store. Always looked like that. Maybe. I particularly (laughs) liked her approach to uh, retail therapy, which is often how I approach it, which is you saved $15.50. You came out ahead more than 15 bucks, But it was still more than I was planning to spend. But, no, you saved so much money. I do that sometimes. I really That's like, the right way to shop. For <laughs> I really liked how last year he asked Marco for help with his mom's present, and she ended up with a Spider-Man comic. <laughs> and this year he asked Cassie, which is still a terrible decision. <laughs> but at least Cassie could point him in the right direction. Then they, can have, then they can have a date where they go to the mall together. That's it's why he's true. asking Cassie. Oh, yeah, that's definitely why he asked. But that was really nice, because you also got to see, like, oh, and they're all, like, friends in real life and, like, doing real life things. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the horrifying cockroaches now. I mean, we don't have to. It's fine. <laughs> Read the book. There were cockroaches. Um, it was horrible. Let's just go. Let's just go to the absolute worst morph that's ever happened. Then suddenly, I heard a squishy sound. As all my internal organs lost their bone support, I was a bag of loose guts. It was so icky. Imagine that. Just take a moment <laughs> no, to imagine. No, I don't want to. I what it, What would his parents have seen if they walked in on him there? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great question. Horrible. Oh. It's the worst, the worst thing these books have asked me to imagine. <laughs> um, the bit of that that I particularly hated was when his, the next line is, my skull melted away. The last sound I heard clearly as my ears and human sense of hearing faded. His skull melted away. <laughs> What? So, Guys, what is gross. wrong with me? Why don't I have a grossness impulse? I think it's broken. It's because you read these at such an impressionable age. Ted was even younger. You I was okay. I was more impressionable. Yeah. Oh, Maybe wow. I was extra impressionable because I was also in love with these books. Right. Oh, yeah. so, so gross. Ted just liked them as a friend. However, for some reason, the like getting bug sprayed thing, it didn't seem quite as horrifying for whatever reason, maybe I'm already numb to kind of the horrors they're going through. It's like it wasn't quite as bad as the ants thing, but... It wasn't as bad as the ants thing, definitely not. Yeah. Um, or maybe it's just the way, maybe Jake isn't a very emotive narrator in that way. He's just kind of a little maybe more matter of fact of like, well, I've got bug sprayed. I'm dying now. Yeah, this it didn't is bad. seem like he had the very same frustrating. reaction. Very <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> they did talk about it being like a, a nerve gas, which I found particularly horrifying. Mm-hmm. But also the idea that, so the five of them, they're in this big meeting. Somebody says, there are several small insects here. And <laughs> one voice says, don't worry, they're only cockroaches. They're everywhere on this planet, which that person needs to pay attention. Not anymore, as that person is dead. But oh, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. But, but it, it was a good 
way to see how the Yerks are also now starting mm-hmm. to be more cautious of yeah. keeping an eye out for things that are odd, like five cockroaches appearing in the light <laughs> at a meeting. I liked how we learned, we got this sort of insight into controllers. We got a lot of instant controllers in this book, but first in this scene where Jake realizes like they aren't noticing the cockroaches because humans do it, but they are with other Yerks. They don't have to act human, so mm. they can just kind of suppress their human impulses. Were you shocked to learn that Visser 3 has a human morph? That seems really obvious. Shocking. <laughs> they built it up for like a chapter. Like, who is this? Who is this human? Tobias feels dread. <laughs> Crazy. Also, a uh, quick question: Who? Which human? Did he also do the like combining the DNA thing? thing? Yeah. I sort of feel like he would have just killed someone I... after acquiring them. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think he wants to bother with like a real person's life or obligations or anything like that. Like, he's probably not in this body for very long. But how hard is it to find like a? random business guy to to just kill and of. then yeah. yeah but like then you have the risk of like if someone sees you in public they're like oh you're that guy who was killed you're back i don't know yeah. i feel like it would be yeah. easier to just make a new person it's the only <laughs> time when that is true is <laughs> when you're an andalite who can combine people's dna in some weird way yeah <laughs> this is clearly someone who is important enough in a human sense to have a limo and mm-hmm a security detail and not have that be weird. Oh, I didn't, I assumed it wasn't that the human was important. I assumed this is something like the sharing arranged for the viscer. Mm. Yes. Again, my logistics mind has some questions about how they're organizing themselves, (laughs) but me and Marco can go talk about that later. Yeah. There are definitely some questions about, I feel like it came up in that scene about their invasion strategies. Like, they could just be forcibly taking over everyone. Like, only they have this hospital and they're only going to take over 200 people a month. That seems so low. I realize that it's easier to get voluntary controllers, but I think there's this question emerging of, like, why are they not pursuing this more aggressively? Mm-hmm. Is it just to make it easier for our heroes, or is there, like, more of an actual justification there? I assumed it was a smaller hospital. Maybe they didn't have that many people in there, but... Why did they have to take over a whole hospital to do that? Why don't they just walk into other hospitals with a box and just, like, put yurks in everyone's heads? This is also where we learn about their governor plan, right? Mm -hmm. That the the governor's going to be infested. And then Rachel points out that he's running for president, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty good plan. Yeah, yeah. Finally. Now, do we think that that was a specific governor? I looked this up. Oh, good. So in 1996, Pete Wilson was the Republican governor of California. Okay. He did run for president, but in the 96 election, so the timing doesn't quite work out oh. unless the books are being published a year or two after they actually happened. Okay. So yeah. the action could be taking place in 1995 yeah. um, okay. instead of 96, like we've been thinking. However, the republished books were like 2010, right? Mm-hmm. In 2010, it was Schwarzenegger. Oh. So that's one thing that the updated books have in their favor. I did think that this was finally the first time where I was like, Yerks, good job. This is like an actual strategy. Mm-hmm. You're investing you know, 200 people a month through this hospital, which you've taken over because you've gotten a bunch of the doctors and nurses. That's great. And now you're going to use that. You've somehow managed to get the the governor's secretary on board, and now he's going to come and have his surgery here. This is a solid plan. And then he's yeah. going to run for president. You'll have a controller as the president. Well done, small <laughs> slug creatures. Like You're finally <laughs> thinking about this. 
I think it's just one of those things where I've been wanting them to have an actual plan that wasn't mm-hmm. just infest random kids in some town in yeah, California. Yeah, lure kids to your beach parties. Which seemed less helpful. Yeah, I think they've probably been doing stuff like this the whole time, and we just haven't, you know, had the proper bug morphs to spy on the meetings. It's a good point. Giving them the benefit of the doubt as strategists. <laughs> so after the roach episode, they decide to upgrade to flies. Let's call it upgrading. <laughs> they seem to I enjoy think, it. Yeah, the fly morph actually was really fun. I liked that. They enjoy being flies. Yes. They do not enjoy morphing into flies no. or watching each other morph into flies. Yeah. Jake's reaction is priceless. And Rachel's <laughs> reaction is great. I do have a very vivid memory of the TV screen eyes that they got, mm. where it's like looking at like a whole wall. Like if you're in a security booth or something, you've got the whole wall of screens. Mm-hmm. I liked how Tobias got to be their shuttle bus and how Jake lied to him about seeing the fleet. Oh, poor Tobias. <laughs> Tobias. And the other thing that jumped out at me about Tobias is when he, I think maybe it's during the roach part, not the fly part, he hurts his wing. Like he's trying to fly around a basement or something. Oh, yeah. right? He bumps into the wall. There. Yeah. Right. But like, that's so bad. What happens if he breaks his wing on like one of these missions? He can't it's just like bad. he can't just like remorph and be okay like all the other ones. He's right? in danger in a way that none of them are. I mm-hmm. mean, they put themselves in more dangerous situations than him, maybe, but like they have this ability to get out of it. But right. even in nature, he talks about the owls mm-hmm. that attack hawks and, yeah. and falcons, and you know they use that later. But it, I've had that same thought of what happens if he gets attacked? I mean, can he go? He's he's got to hide out in Jake's attic. And I guess maybe Cassie's dad could fix his wing, but he does seem like he's in more day-to-day danger than the others. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of morphing, when Jake is recovering from the bug spray, he demorphs while unconscious. Yeah. Right? Which is, I think, we were talking about this a couple episodes Mm -hmm. ago, like what happens if you pass out during during a morph or whatever. And so there's, there's like some... He somehow managed to do it. Maybe he started the morph before he passed out, or... I think he did start the morph before he passed out, and also maybe because of what he was dreaming. Like, at some point he was dreaming about being himself. Maybe that helped. I don't know. And it wasn't clear to me if he was entirely unconscious, or if he had just drifted into a sort of half-waking dream Mm -hmm. of this recurring dream that he's had. I was intrigued by the way they split up when they got to the hospital. I was like, okay, so this is an example of Jake's strategies for what to do with his people. Like, okay, I need Cassie with me. (laughs) (laughs) And he keeps Axe with him too, which is a good call because Axe is still a little bit of a loose cannon. Like, he's a little bit of an unknown property. He did well in the fight in the fifth book, but we don't really know him as well. And then Marco and Rachel, he feels like can take care of themselves, like they can go off. Right. Especially if they're together. I think their different skills play yeah, well together. Yeah, yeah. Marco's very paranoid and good he'll at kind of ring Rachel and she'll provide some muscle. And right, uh, make sure he doesn't <laughs> overthink it. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, They make a good pairing in that way. That scene of them first morphing into the fly was the most lighthearted they've been in a while, too, where they are really just enjoying <laughs> the experience. Which I liked, because yeah. that happened a few times with dolphins, you know, and they, they have fun with it, but occasionally the fun of being able to morph is overshadowed by the reason that they have to morph. So mm-hmm. I appreciated that they got a little bit of fun in this one. Let's talk about that scene in the hospital with the jacuzzi full of yurks, where Jake has Axe demorph and Axe knocks out a human controller, and Jake makes this comment about, like, that was a good call not killing him. He's someone's son or husband or father or whatever. And then not he minutes later, Axe murders <laughs> an entire jacuzzi but full of that, Axe cuts off a guard's hand, 
right? Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. actually notice that. When someone comes in with a yep. gun, you know, Axe isn't like trying to disarm or knock oh, people yeah. out. He's mm-hmm. just like, I'm going to cut off this guy's hand. Oof. And then presumably, you know, the gorilla shows up and kills them. Yeah. But you get to the other thing, which is he then boils a hundred years alive. Like, he doesn't think about it in terms of like, oh, this is a war crime. But it is. He has a hundred yurks completely helpless in his hands and he kills them. Yeah. He calls, he thinks that they are filthy creeps, right? He's, yeah. He's totally adopted the Andalite view of what mm-hmm. yurks are, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, based on... It's understandable at this point. Yeah, it's understandable, yeah. but you're right. He, it's thoughtless. He's like, I, I made a quick decision is the way he thinks yeah. about it. It's like, it, it is a decision. Like, I think he recognizes that it's not nothing, but it's he doesn't think about it at the scale that it really is. Probably because they aren't humanoid in any way like they do look like slugs and we haven't they haven't been humanized by their experiences at all yet and there's a certain sense of uh science fiction tropes again where yeah when you have the enemies at your fingertips you destroy them and grapple with it later yeah and i'm not gonna say it was not a good decision but it is a bigger decision than he thinks of it as Mm -hmm. and does he grapple with it it doesn't seem to bother him for the rest of the does. book. Cassie is there in the room and, you know, maybe she didn't quite think about what was going on, but she doesn't bring it up. Yeah, Cassie was there mm-hmm. and doesn't. Yeah. That's a good point. And I think this is a potential growth point for them. Like, these books don't shy away from actually grappling with stuff. And I wonder what kind of grappling with killing Yerkes, grappling with killing other sentient beings. Mm-hmm. We'll see later. And it's a, the way that he's so concerned about Tom but he's missing the forest for the trees because on this mission where they're like, oh, you know, if Tom's there, we're going to protect Tom, protect Tom. There's so much collateral damage. And, again, and he doesn't really weigh that. He, he feels a little bit of guilt about kind of like treating Tom as the special case. But mm-hmm. instead of thinking, even though he says it, instead of thinking, well, all human life is really important to protect – He's really thinking, like, I should just be more ruthless. It would be better if I was okay with Tom dying for the mm-hmm. sake of winning the war. Like, that's his instinct, which is a really kind of disturbing thing to think about. Or it's, his, really it's what he it. thinks his instinct should be. Right, right. It's, yeah. So, right, it's good that he yeah. still cares about his brother. Well, I guess we get a summary of his thoughts. I mean, the Yerk says it later, but Jake's like, yes, that was exactly what I was thinking. He says, I'm never happy when any creature has to be destroyed, but I don't feel any pity for those Yerks. They're out to enslave us. We did what we had to do. Which does show a little bit more reflection than he showed in the moment. But I think it's interesting that I'm never happy when any creature has to be destroyed. Like, that's not very specific. He wouldn't be happy about killing, you know, a bunch of cats either. Like, it's a little bit different thinking of them as not humans, but people. Yeah, sentient beings. Yeah. One of the books that we've compared this to is Ender's Game, where it's a group Mm -hmm. of children who have to be the ones fighting. And... That actually is a, a really interesting contrast here because in Ender's Game, big moral conflict is, spoilers for Ender's Game, is him realizing that the bugs they've been fighting, right, are sentient beings who, who have done nothing to deserve being slaughtered yeah. and, and him trying to make up for that. And in this case, we don't see that. And I wonder if part I of mean, it... I mean, they have done stuff that maybe makes them deserve it. The deserving right. gets the open question exactly does the deserving make make a difference and seeing them infect all of these people does that mean that this pool of yurks is essentially a pool of warriors yeah but there are i mean i don't know much about war crimes but like you know you capture a bunch of prisoners of war slaughtering them's not usually cool even if they've done stuff yeah 
I just think even after the experience he has at the end of the book, he doesn't think of Yerkes as having humanity. No. He starts to um, he starts to see well they have a range of emotions, but he's mm-hmm. like well they don't feel any love. He thinks about like the difference between humans and Yerkes, and he's like Yerkes are just ruthless. They'll do anything to win. Doesn't really see the irony of like they'll do anything <laughs> to win in, I did in this really, situation. I did really like the parallel he drew, which he drew between humans and all Yerkes. He did have one specific Yerk in his head. But like the idea that humans will keep fighting even when it's dumb, even when it's a stupid choice and there's no way to win and Yerkes will just give up because that makes sense. Like that was an interesting insight into human psychology. I wonder, I don't, I don't think he really has the basis for knowing it's true of all Yerkes. Yeah. I do actually want to read that line in its entirety because this seems to me to be the sort of moral or, or mission statement of the entire series. Ooh. So I realized then that there's a very basic difference between Yerkes and humans. A human will fight even when he knows he can't win. Maybe our species is just a little crazy. But human history is full of cases where a handful of guys would fight an entire army. They'd get stumped, but they'd fight anyway. It's not the way it is for Yerkes. They're ruthless. They'll do anything, absolutely anything to win. But when the situation is impossible, totally impossible, they stop fighting. They figure other Yerkes will carry on the fight for them. Different ways of looking at the world. And... I thought that's exactly what they're doing, right? It's a handful yeah. of guys fighting an entire army and and not just guys, but, you know, a, a group of teenagers trying to fight off this entire invading force of sophisticated warrior yerks. Yeah. And I, it Conquerors seemed to me... of the galaxy. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. The one thing that kind of bothered me a little bit was how overloaded all the Tom stuff was. So I was wondering, Gray, whether you had a little bit of this the world is too small reaction after Jake mm. gets There infested. was a lot of Tom stuff. Like It doesn't seem reasonable to me that a up-and-coming visitor of the whatever would have been in Tom in the first place. It seems that their position in the Yerk hierarchy somewhat reflects their hierarchy amongst humans. Except that we haven't really seen that. Like, you could guess that that would be true, but it kind of isn't. Yeah, I guess, because we did talk about Visser 1 being just Marco's mom. So, yeah, I don't... I I I mean, Chapman's an assistant principal. Like, he has power over the Animorphs, but, like, there's no reason for the Yerks to think that's powerful. So then why... How did they decide which Yerk is going to go into which person? I wonder if it's partially, like... It's probably a few things. It's probably like not having a very intuitive understanding of the human hierarchy. Like it doesn't mean anything to them. Like, oh yeah, this one has money. That means he's more desirable or something. They probably think about it practically in very different terms. Like, does this person live near the center of operations? Does this person have the like freedom of time to do these things? I don't know. But Access I think it to a might, hospital. Yeah, it might be partially also they infest the host. And once you infest a host, like it's not like they swap around a lot. They infest the host and then they end up showing their quality. So maybe Tom has been doing a lot of great things for the Yerks, like his Yerk has been doing a lot of great things, and they're recognizing that, and they're like, oh, there's some talent there, let's put him in a position where, in this case, actually a powerful human. Yeah. It just seems counterintuitive to my understanding yeah. of human politics, but then I'm not a Yerk, so what do I know? <laughs> they probably don't have that. Right. And they do sort of have a pretty good strategy. Mr. Three rattles off their targets, right? The police, the media, mm-hmm. uh, politicians. Yeah, so maybe it is more that like they recognize talent in Tom, and that's why they're moving. I thought it was interesting, the fact that Tamrash is the one who ends up being the only survivor of this mission, and the one that uh, starts to control Jake, is convenient in that it also dramatically lowers the stakes, which are that Tom's life is in danger, right? So if they had waited a day, 
Tom would no longer have been this up and coming Yurk, right? Because Tim Rash was being That's lined true. up for being groomed for other things. That was like the one thing where I was like, oh, maybe this is like a little convenient. But it's interesting yeah. that it didn't. No, it is, I think you're right that it is it didn't overly convenient. And I think the idea that if they had waited a day, they could have done this slightly differently. But the Tom stuff felt to me less like the stakes and more like a focus on Jake's relationships. Yeah. I think it was a big part of totally, the book. Totally. So I, I didn't, for some reason, it didn't bother me as much. And like what Jenny was saying before, the narrative economy of these books is so scarce that they just need to they just need to do it this way yeah i think it would have been bad if like oh now tom is free like that would have been really cheap but i think sort of changing the stakes to okay we might have to hurt tom to do this there's this ongoing problem where jake's brother is a controller it's going to instigate this particular mission to jake is a controller like that is such an escalation that i feel like it's okay that the tom thing drops back and it's going to come up in future books obviously Mm -hmm. yeah I think also, while it is a coincidence that he gets Tom's Yerk, maybe that's why the Yerk is like up and coming because he takes initiative and all the other Yerks are dying. He's like, ahead, I shall go into- inside it. Good point. <laughs> let's let's talk about that, though. Let's, let's get into that. What's the kind of Yerk that succeeds under Visser 3's rule? Ooh, I think it's just, just the kind of like smarmy, arrogant idiot that Temrash is. Temrash is a stupid controller. <laughs> even when Temrash is still controlling Tom, he screws up, right? He lets he lets the mask slip a little bit that's in front true. of Jake, yeah. and then he doesn't he does it again, and that's that's the only reason <laughs> that he doesn't get away with it and take down the whole thing, right? Yeah, he's this kind of like he's probably like a suck up, he's probably a yes man, but he's I don't get the sense that he's control. right, right. Mm-hmm. I I thought it was so interesting that he's a little bit more than just kind of like a generic baddie. He, he definitely has this like personality. Mm. I don't know that Jake, oh, I think Jake makes generic, a lot of assumptions yeah. like, oh, all Eric's are like this, which is, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Eric's <laughs> can't feel love. Right. I thought that was strong. It could just be Tamarash. <laughs> that was my thought. I was trying to think about whether it's just Jake's experience with Tamarash because he's a particularly odious person mm-hmm. uh, or if there is something to this idea that they figure Yerks will carry on the fight for them and I was thinking that it must be there's kind of a justification for the lack of creativity that we see in the Yerks and their group think because of the way being a parasite seems to work where the Yerks kind of they bring a little bit of their hosts with them and they also mm-hmm. kind of change hosts right mm-hmm. so not only are the Yerks absorbing a little bit of their host personalities, but they're also kind of absorbing each other's personalities depending on, so like there's oh, going to be a little bit of Temrash left behind in Tom. So whatever that other Yerk is, mm-hmm. is going to be more likely to kind of share the same thing. So there's this potential narrow-mindedness that would come from being this kind of shared parasitic blob. But I think you were also onto something when you were asking what kind of Yerk would rise under Visser 3's leadership. Even if Yerks as a whole aren't like this, certainly this operation under Visser 3, creativity is dangerous. You don't want to stick your neck out. He's probably going to cut it off. But also the rewards for doing that are so great that mm. if you do have a crazy idea, it might be worth it to try and make that happen. So presumably had Tamrash not died, he, he would have been punished in Tom for the failure of this mission. Because their mission does fail. They don't get to infect the um, governor. But had it succeeded, he would have gotten to be the Yerk in the governor. So it it is that sort of under under that kind of, yeah, yeah, under that kind of regime. And we get a little more vague insight into the Yerk military 
hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? Temrash has already been promoted from like a 200 something to a 114. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about being like a, a sub viscer or something. Under viscer is what An under viscer, yeah. Yeah. Which I wonder about because we learned in the message that there are about 50 viscers. Like Axe says, they're like, we think there are 47 viscers. So what's the difference between like a Temrash and an Innis? And then like, can you, yeah. sh- is it, do Yurks have unique numbers? Like, is it every single Yurk has a unique number and that's their strict order? Or does it like fork at some point? Because it seems like there's only one Visser and they're definitely the best, but there are these other groups. We don't know the answer, it was, but. Yeah, it was confusing because I remember in book two, he said something about Chapman said, or Chapman's wife was like, he used the Yerk Eater on an Innis of the second century. And we assumed that was just like when that Yerk was born or when it was spawned. But now it seems like you can change numbers. And we really don't know what that means. Oh, and speaking of the second book, that's actually another, I think that's our best evidence that not all Yerks are like Temrash. We don't obviously get the same insight into the the Innis uh, Yerk in Chapman's head. But just based on, like, I cannot imagine Tamrash ever letting Jake speak uh, in the way that Innes does at the end of book two, where mm, Chapman's allowed yeah, to kind of no. approach Visser three, right? So there's, the, you know, Yurks aren't all the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I do think there's a sense, so I, I was trying to map out the um, hierarchies, and it seemed like you ha- that they have a, a pod name. And within that, there are numbers. You can be, you know, in the hundreds, you're of the second century, possibly, mm-hmm. because he wants to move up into, like, someday I'll be in the 90s and maybe one day. So the way I had thought about it was that there were numbers within the pods and that you could actually change numbers, okay. but you're always, he'll always be Tamrash. And then once you hit 50, you get to be a <laughs> Oh, yeah. Interesting. That but it's not sense. like there are 50 viscers in every pod. No. But right, maybe it's, it branches after fifty after or something 50, like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if that's true. But right, that's oh, and there's also they're part of a pool. So right. both he and Innes are of the Sulp Nayar pool. Whoa. So maybe there are other pools. Maybe there are Temrashes in different places. Yeah. Oh yeah, my goodness, it's all very complicated. Maybe we'll learn more. There's surely there must be a part of these. There's the Andalite Chronicles. There must be Yurk Chronicles. Right? I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> Going back to after the hospital scene, we have the wonderful sequence, which I'm going to guess this is when you stop taking notes, Gray. When we figure out that Jake is a controller and you wait for everyone else to figure it out. I was reading the beginning of that being like, oh yeah, okay, I remember they figure this out. It's so great that like by this point in the series, they all know each other so well, they're going to recognize it. Axe is the one who figures it out. Yep. Which makes sense. Yeah, it did make sense. I mean, because he's sort of looking for it, but also he has more experience with what a controller looks like. Yeah. Even better, they don't find some kind of way for Temrash to screw up that kind of ruins the Yurks, the whole idea of being a controller as Mm -hmm. something that is undetectable, right? Because if Marco had been able to figure it out or Cassie had been able to look Mm -hmm. into Jake's eyes and know, it would have really lowered the stakes for the rest of the infestation Mm storyline. So it's like, this is the perfect way to get out of it. And they don't drag it out. It happens right away. Because if it had lasted any longer, Tamrash would have gotten away with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great the way that each of them then was able to corroborate it. Marco and and Rachel have a moment where they're like, yep, 
that's definitely not Jake. <laughs> and then they actually talk through with Jake and the year how they know it's yeah. not him. If you were Jake, so good. you would have helped. You would have realized you had to help us by yeah. now. That's another reason why Tamarash is not as, uh, he, he's not the kind of masterful manipulator <laughs> he thinks he is. Because Tobias says that at the beginning and he doesn't, he doesn't pivot his strategy. Mm-hmm. If Wait, he had Tobias just, says Tobias says like, you know, Jake would help us pretty uh-huh. early on. Oh, okay. And Tamarash keeps, he keeps mm. screwing up. He keeps saying, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to help this Andalite. I'm not going to, you know, go along with it. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he makes several mistakes after he first gets caught. Yeah. That was just really satisfying. It was also really interesting because I feel like as readers, we are so trained to root for the main character. So I kept finding myself in that scene, sort of half rooting for the Yerk to succeed, and then being like, no way, I really don't want that. But it's still because the Yerk felt like the main character, because he was in the main character's body and making the main character do things. Right. I kept instinctively rooting for his success. Not in a large scale thing, but just in like specific lines. Like, oh, I hope he convinces them. No, I don't want him to convince them. (laughs) And because of that, you get to see what it's like to have the Animorphs as your enemies. Right? It's terrifying. So they're one step ahead of Tamarash the whole time, but that scene where he's escaping as a tiger and trying to do this other oh, stuff, so good. they're always one step ahead of them. And it's it's really scary mm-hmm. being up against this this tight-knit group of any animal that you can yep. imagine. They Hiding actually the shadows they totally tiny, control yeah. the situation and you can see why they're such a terror to the, the Yerks. Oh, you're so right. Great. Did you think while you're reading this, but he's just going to morph? Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't did. the first time I read it. And I think it might be, as an adult, obviously, you're like, okay, but he's going to morph and escape. As even a 13-year-old, 13-year-olds are pretty smart. It didn't occur to me. Mm-hmm. It was also the second book I read, but still. Yeah, I was sure he was going to morph. And I actually thought he was going to morph into the fly again, because that would have mm-hmm. been a lot harder to track yeah. than the tiger. Would have been a much better choice. But it, it, I was expecting him to do it, and I was very surprised when Rachel fell asleep, and then it was all part of the plan. <laughs> okay, that was a bad plan. Oh. She shouldn't have pretended to fall asleep because Tamarash chooses not to kill her. If they oh, didn't, like, true. that was that was a huge risk. I was terrified. Again, a lot of their decisions are not great, but I think this was one of those where I was so impressed by how well they worked together and mm-hmm. how much they had thought out, okay, he has these morphs. How are we going to trap him mm-hmm. if he's in any of these? So, okay, if he turns into the falcon. And they didn't need Jake as their leader. <gasps> they That's did not. So true. I was wondering, because they don't bring it up when they're bringing him to the cabin. Like, no one mentions, yeah, you better not morph. Like, I bet probably Tobias instigated it. I bet Tobias and Axe were, like, thought-speaking to all of them, being Mm. like, okay, we know he's going to morph. Let's not mention it. Let's, like, let him think he can get away with it. Yeah. Maybe this is Tobias secretly it, taking over as the It leader. actually, the, we got a little hint of this. I, I think I think that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely true. And Tobias, I think, is one of the first. Tobias suggests, we'll just wait three days. Yeah. That's like, mm-hmm. again, one of the first things that he comes to. It reminds me a little bit of when they keep Rachel in the dark in book two about how they're going to shadow oh, her. Yeah. Like she wants to go in alone and they just, they don't tell her, but they're, they kind of have her back in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just... They're really, they're really clever. They're such a good, they're really good uh, team. military squad. And I love the line um, where Cassie's thought speaking uh, to Jake, and she says, "I'm sorry, I had to hurt you. We we realized they would try morphing, so we were ready. You hang in there, Jake. The forest is full of your friends." Oh, I loved that because it's true. Anytime, like for those three days, anytime the Yerk tries to take advantage of Jake's skills in order to get away. His friends are there. Yeah. I just loved that. 
the one other thing about the Anwarfs being really scary that jumped out to me was when um, Tobias stops him from escaping. And Tamarash is like, would you kill your friend? And Tobias is just like, I don't need to. I'm just going to blind you. He also says that he would Mm -hmm. if he had to. Sure. I mean, yeah. I think that's obviously a bluff, but like, that's horrible. Yeah, that's just horrible that they're thinking they're thinking about doing that, mm-hmm. and like, it, Jake would feel that. Jake yeah. would have to go through that. I mean, it wouldn't be permanent, but right. Yeah, yeah it would still be terrifying. He has some uh, twisted friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also get a really good view of how twisted it is what the Yerks do to people. I was really stunned by the mention that he couldn't choose where to direct his eyes. Like, obviously he can't. He can't control his body. But, like, that was such Mm. a visceral... There are so many ways in the world in which sometimes people aren't free. Sometimes people can't do... It's very rare that you can't control where you point your eyes. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't control which sounds to focus on. So crazy. Yeah, and this is actually something we had talked about, I think, in book two with the Chapmans. We were sort of trying to figure out how much they were able to fight the Yerks. And mm-hmm. and I had sort of thought, like, I wonder what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. And now you really get to see it of being trapped and not able to break out of that. And, and for those who unwillingly become controllers how horrible it is to be fighting against yourself in that way. So with Tom in particular, you know, you see him like screaming against the Yerk to protect his brother and just how horrible that was right. as a scene. I mean, we've, we've talked yeah. a lot about the lack of control, the lack of choices and how difficult those things can be. But this was the first time we'd really gotten a sense of that from a controller's perspective. Yeah. And I think it does, it's not that it necessarily raises the stakes, but I think it personalizes the conflict in a way that we haven't had before. I mean, we've had Melissa, how horrible it was that her parents were different to her now, and that's mm-hmm. really bad. But this is the first time we were like, yeah, but imagine being in Mr. Chapman's head yeah. and and fighting against this uncontrollable force forever. And, you know, imagine being Marco's mom we were talking oh, about with the last book, yes. right? And it, and it answers the question about how much access do the Yerks have to their hosts. Mm-hmm. And it's the answer is total access. Everything. Right? When, when Tamarash is like, fantasies. right, well, that remember was one your of the most dumb basketball things. dream, yeah. Yeah. right? And how invasive that felt for Jake, right? He's, he's totally crushed. Yes. They crush them so totally. I, I mean, they can't control all their thoughts, but they can control like sort of what they visualize, it sounds like. And they also, oh, another thing that really struck me was this thing where no one knows. You go through every day and you're like, someone's going to notice. Someone's going to notice. And no one ever does. Mm-hmm. Like, Jake was so lucky. He encountered an Andalite and, you know, and they figured it out right away. But, right. And going back to Tom, you remember he has that brief moment of freedom in the first book, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he's still he kind of... Back. Yeah, and he and he has that. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like sacrifice myself, and he go, he goes off the stairs, right? And like, thankfully, doesn't die when he he turns around and like distracts Mister Three or something. Oh, right actual freedom. That's right. Yes, I yeah. forgot about that. Oh, and no. then, but I can't imagine that Tom described at the end of this book even being able to do that anymore. Is that the year showing Jake the most horrible moments of Tom's life? Well, I'm just saying because it's more recent. And we yeah. saw how Chapman couldn't even, like, walk anymore after after years and years of going through yeah. it. Right? So, to me, this kind of hammers home how, like you were saying, no yeah. one ever notices. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Right? So, yeah. so Tom had this, like, brief taste of freedom. And, you Maybe know, he's been worse. trapped again yeah. for, for months. And now he's just despairing instead of fighting back. 
And what you were saying, Gray, about being an involuntary controller, I wonder, it seems like there are some actual voluntary controllers, like we saw the humans laughing and having fun in the year pool, which was crazy. But I think probably for most of them, if they get to the point where they're being offered the choice, maybe it's better to take it voluntarily because if you don't, you're gonna, it's going to happen anyway. Like you can't say no to the Yergs. You can choose to say yes, and maybe that makes it a little less unpleasant for you. Yeah, maybe you're not fighting your own head as much. Because I imagine there are people who get pulled into it totally involuntarily, like Tom. There seem to be some people who are like, yeah, sure, for some reason. But there must be a group that, like, by the time anyone offers them the decision, they would say no, but they recognize that they can't, and so they say yes. Although even within that group, I sort of see Chapman as being part of that group, right? He says mm, yeah. yes in order to somewhat in order to protect Melissa, but also because his wife is yeah. a controller, and that that still involves a certain amount of struggle fighting mm-hmm. back against the Yerks. Mostly, I think I think there's in many ways a human impulse towards towards privacy and individuality, yeah. at least in our culture, that has played out in these books. I mean, look at how horrified they were by the ants experience. And to go then to being part of this group think must be for anyone such a horrible experience. I mean, I think more so for Jake who really understands what's happening um, and has been fighting against it than it might be for someone who wasn't aware of of what was going on and maybe wasn't aware of the Yerkes plans. Mm -hmm. But I think it would still be awful to have that other voice in your head and access to all of your software. Yeah. Well, like Tobias says, we said it from the start, better to die than be a controller. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about kind of the mechanics of how it works? You mentioned the software thing. So first, when Temrash lashes out and says... You handle filth out loud. Jake <laughs> says he is like his voice was distorted yeah. or he added some distortion to it. Unfortunately, I am now imagining Tamrash sounding exactly like a Dalek. <laughs> um, so like, I am wrapped around your brain like a living blanket. Um, wow, that's but, not where I went with it. But so he says he continues to taunt Jake in this kind of ridiculous self-conscious supervillain way. But like, your brain is no different to me than one of your primitive human computers. I open any file I like. I play any software. I use you. I own you. I dominate you. You are nothing anymore. Just an echo. Just a ghost haunting the machine of your own brain. Wow, I didn't quite picture it in that tone of voice. But it's very (laughs) appalling when you say it like that. Can I also read the bit about what exactly physically happens? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because we also get that. Uh, Jake has asked Axe about how the Yerk slug lives in a person's head. He'd explain it to me. How they can flatten their slug-like bodies. How they can sink between the crevices and cracks of a person's brain. How they melt like a liquid into every available space. How they wrap their bodies around a brain and attach their own neurons to human neurons. Ew, 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 ew. You can see it's why horrible. it would take a little while the first time to like figure and out what's going And why it would be the... painful. Yeah. Well, it's painful when they enter. Your brain doesn't feel pain, fortunately, yeah. but emotional pain, yes. So there's a lo- I have a lot of questions. <laughs> One thing that jumped out to me, this ghost in the machine line made me start to kind of think about how neurologically this might play out. 
-hmm. And so one of the theories about how human consciousness works is epiphenomenalism. So that consciousness is going on. This is like less about free will and more like your body's just doing stuff. And that consciousness mm -hmm. is a result of that. So when, you, when you're tapping your finger, right, your, your body starts doing that before you become aware of it. Mm -hmm. So there's almost this plausible idea that what the yerk is doing is taking over the control center, but leaving the inputs live for Jake's consciousness, right? So he's, mm. it's kind of this plausible, like he's, he's lost control, but he's still along for the ride. And then the yerk is able to create these visions and do other things yeah. and manipulate the parts of his brain very the, mechanically. The funny thing is, I think if the Yurks had a choice, they would not let the human consciousness survive. So the books seem to be saying that the human consciousness is sort of inalienable, like there's no way to get rid of it. The Yurks Yeah, like, which is actually very opposed to the kind of computer yeah. metaphor, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it sort of suggests that he has this fine grain control and, and maybe he doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but I also had a lot of questions now about how the morphing works with the Yurk infestation. So when Ooh. he talks about being trapped in morph, presumably if Tobias had been trapped that way with a Yurk, the Yurk would always kind of be there in control and Tobias would always be there, right? But, but would so the Yurk physically be in the head of the hawk? Because what if what if you were a Yurk infested human and you morphed to a fly and got stuck? The Yurk doesn't fit in the fly. The Yurk is like with the rest of the human mind wherever it is. Ooh. Human doesn't fit in the fly. <laughs> I don't think right. the physical restraints are right. The so, thing. but let, so then, then can a Yurk infest a non-human animal? Could a Yurk infest an anamorph while they're in morph? What would happen if the, you then demorphed? Does the Yurk disappear or does the does the yurk's ability somehow get into the brain and then it could still be in control later there's a lot That's of there's a lot of weird questions i actually thought about this because as jake was morphing i thought well the yurk's not part of jake and it's not part of the animal dna so like where's the yurk but i think because of the way the yurk infests jake it's like he's wearing clothes on the inside so you know they can <laughs> yeah. you know they can morph yeah. with yeah with their with their clothes on, it makes sense to me that something that is in his brain would morph with him. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that Yerks could infest a tiger, for example. Yeah, but I see no reason why would not. have no reason to do that because they're it wouldn't be as easy for them to like then take over the world yeah. as it would be for them to infest humans. Yeah. And that they couldn't, for example, infest a fly. Because right. the fly doesn't have the ear, but if they had infested the human, then they would still be there in the fly. But I really like Ted's question. So I think this does rely on some information we get about morphing later, which isn't mm. very spoilery. But basically, it's that like the rest of your mask goes and hangs out in Z space, which we learned. What? About. Yeah, I'm it's anti-reality gray. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is a really good question because I I can buy that. If the human mind can somehow control the fly from sea space somehow, then if a human with a yerk in it morphs, then the yerk mind can control the fly body from sea space. It's still in the human, whatever. But if a human morphs a tiger and then the tiger gets infested, I'm really unclear on what would happen to the yerk when the human morphs back. I think this is a high-risk, high-reward strategy. Hear me out. <laughs> it takes a while for you to become controlled. Uh -huh. And we've learned that you can demorph while unconscious. So mm -hmm. if they let themselves get infested as animals, knock each other out while demorphing, they can just delete, <laughs> you know, five or six yurks at a time. 
That seems like a very Tamrush style strategy. And I'm not really sure I'm into that. But we also, I don't know if we ever really get clarity, and this might be answered in later books, I don't know, on where does the extra mass come from when they morph like an elephant? Is it that they pull mass, like oh, random no, floating yeah, mass from Z-Space? It space? So it does that, do they send sense. the random mass back into Z-Space? Is the Yurk like floating with random elephant mass in Z-Space? And is it still connected to the human in any way? Or is it just gone? I don't know why I'm so much more offended by the idea that their extra mass goes into Z-Space <laughs> than I am by the idea of them and just morphing. But I totally am. The other thing about, like, so Yurks are parasites. They evolved in this particular world and like the ged are their host species that they're most familiar with but brains across the universe are it works the same way right oh, the, the parasites they're like universal parasites in a really weird way and dna is the so same yeah so there's kind of this like essentialism about what it means to be a a conscious a sentient being yeah. in the universe yeah. uh, that's maybe a little convenient yeah, do taxons have ears? How do they get into the... There must be some right. channel. Taxon brains are just like ours. This is what we've learned from... <laughs> Fundamentally the same in some way. Yeah. Horrifying. I was thinking, actually, with regard to the last book, the last episode, we talked about how Axe probably doesn't have a lot of experience morphing. He's been fighting this war in space. And I was thinking about it. I was like, there is no reason for the Andalites to have this morphing power at all, except that it works for the Animorphs on Earth it really doesn't seem like it would be helpful in the Andalite style of war in any way. Like, there's no reason for the Andalites to have this technology at all. Right. They are fighting in space. Yeah. Right. What kind of fighting are you doing where you have to morph into flies? Well, what if... So the Andalites are very capable warriors, but yeah. the Yurks, as, as if they can infest everything, and there are only, you know, three species in the galaxy left that are still fighting, mm-hmm. maybe there were certain things that the Yurks... Uh, infested that the Andalites would need to turn into a different creature to fight? I think we might have to address these questions later. Yeah. But I can see that maybe the Andalites developed this technology not for war. Like maybe they developed it because they want to know what it's like to be different species and they seem to have this culture that appreciates nature. Right. And so maybe they developed it and then realized it could be applicable for war. So it's just something they give to their warriors. Maybe they don't end up using it that often. Doesn't seem like Axe has used it much yet aside from his time with the Animorphs. But then it also happens to be very handy for the Animorphs. Oh, yeah. Speaking of things that we talked about too early, this book has the detail that I think I was thinking of in the message about the unique diversity of life on planet Earth. I started talking about this a little bit before. and Tamarash is musing so many species on this planet, so many balances and connections, every power checked by some other power, every advantage canceled by some disadvantage. You know, the Yurk homeworld is so simple and elegant. No more than 100 species. What does a planet (laughs) need with a million species? Um, I think it implies that ecosystems tend to be simpler. We talked about that in the message, that Earth is very complicated and is in a very precarious state of balance in a lot of ways. And we had talked about what animals are they going to wipe out and not wipe out everything. Yeah. It's going to mess some stuff up. So I thought that was really interesting that the Yurk recognized that, that that must be part of why the Animorphs are so frightening is that the Yurks probably don't recognize half of these species. It's not like they have, they know what a tiger is, but all of a sudden they're being attacked by, an African elephant that has tusks and is huge and... Right. They're not trying to infest the zoologists. Right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they'll get there. Mm-hmm. There were a couple things that jumped out as me as being seeds of things to come at the end of this book. Okay. 
did you have any reactions, Gray, to kind of the the very end? <laughs> there are two things in particular. So one is someday you'll have to get the story of the Andalites mm-hmm. and the Yerks. Yeah, yep. I'm excited about that. I, I assume the Andalite Chronicles will help us address that Maybe. question. But the other thing was the machine. Yes, a creature or a machine, some combination, both no arms. It sat still on a throne that was miles high. Its head was a single eye. Yes, it clearly <laughs> the eye of Sauron. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure why the eye of Sauron suddenly appeared in the science fiction series. I don't think you're supposed to be. I it was before So this was Excited. before the Lord of the Rings movies came out. We've mentioned that before. So this was a much more obscure image that she was drawing on. Uh-huh. I think anyone writing a series today would not make something so blatantly Sauron. It is very Sauron. Yeah. And I don't no why? I'm hoping that there is more about the Yerk homeworld and that that is what's running the single eye, but I don't, I'm very excited about <laughs> well, that. Well, do the slugs have eyes? Maybe they've all banded together to create one giant eye so that they can each, you know, have one. Imagining a, <laughs> a, an eye made of slugs. It's like <laughs> in a circle. The other bit at the end that I did want to talk about was the Tom. Um, oh, yeah. So, so Tom is reinfected and infested yeah. infested sorry someone who's infected. hopefully less obnoxious than Tamara. <laughs> i wouldn't count on it but yeah let's hope um and and jake gives him that message of hope and that's such a sweet thing to do and that such a dumb thing to do um but i also really liked that jake has retained some parts of Tamworth's memories of mm-hmm. the hork and the, the Ged, yeah. and even of Tom. Now, again, that is very invasive, and I <laughs> would not recommend this as not a like strategy. He, could choose. He, he had no choice. Right. But it is. it was interesting that he could have those thoughts still. Um, right. Yeah, especially when he must feel very distant from his brother, mm-hmm. obviously. And, and he said, so Tom feels like he's completely given up. But Jake at the end is like, I also know him well enough to know that I can give him this bit of hope, Mm -hmm. right? Which I thought was very powerful. I was really interested by their discussion earlier in the book about Tom is involved in this. Should we still go through with it? And that people were suggesting, like, maybe we just shouldn't because Tom's involved in it. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, the perspective they were coming from. I could see how maybe it would be practical, like they don't want to send Jake, their leader, if we don't count Tobias, into like some kind of spiral. They want them all to be able to keep fighting. Maybe they don't attack their family members. And it's interesting that he doesn't, we talked about this a little bit before, he should be ruthless. He does need to make the hard call, and that's Mm -hmm. the strategic right thing to do. He won't even acknowledge the fact that it is true that he wants to not do it because Mm -hmm. of Tom, right? So Cassie at least is giving voice to what he's feeling. Yeah, and it really underlined her role as the heart. Mm-hmm. Marco is really the head, and Cassie is the heart. Yeah. But Marco's position as the head is a little compromised by this thing with his mom. Right. Hmm. And But Cassie and Marco have that thing where Cassie's like, we just shouldn't do it. And then Marco's like, it's only a sneaking mission, right? Mm, we can just go yeah. and spy. So, so Jake kind of has the choice. He's not, he can't let his emotions out, but he'll at least take the sort of rationalization of, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, we don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Now that we've seen each of them have their own book, it's nice to revisit <clears throat> them kind of knowing a little bit more. So Marco, as I was convinced on our last episode, is, you know, he's got this very snarky sense of humor, but he is, you know, more committed to the mission. But I really loved how practical and paranoid he is <laughs> because it's very reasonable to be paranoid in these situations yeah. 
And uh, in particular, Jake says, maybe I was just being paranoid, but Marco, who could teach a class in paranoia, had already figured it out, of course. They're going to use the hospital to infest his bodies. Loved that. Nice. Like, yep. Yeah. Marco is paranoid and also, correct. Some of my favorite Marco banter so far in the series, as soon as he becomes a roach, he says, I have a major urge to step on myself. <laughs> yes. Such a good joke. And then the little bit where he tells Jake to say, I'm a huge dork. Yeah. And Marco's like, I couldn't hear you, but I know you. <laughs> I love, love that. It. So good. And I also love them knowing each other so well. Yeah. I loved Axe turning into Jake. First, do you think he managed to integrate clothing into his Jake morph? Or did Jake just turn around and just make himself <laughs> standing there? <laughs> That's better. That's better. Uh, that's so funny. Cassie must have been so embarrassed. Yeah. Also, I just love that we got the glimpse at the end of how completely crazy Axe was in Jake's body. His parents must think Jake is going through so much. They're like, wow, puberty is rough. Okay, here's the thing. Why don't Yurks have the same problem with human morphs? Do well, Yurks have a sense of taste? Why is Axe the only one who has this has so much <laughs> trouble really with it? That's a really good question. Really good question. But maybe the they... Yurk has the entire human brain. Maybe that helps. Oh, yeah. So it is just human instincts or dumb? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like Axe doesn't have... You, yeah. you don't have the executive function that comes with <laughs> a controller. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> it was so great. I mean, and I also think part of this is if you have a 13-year-old boy in your house, you kind of get used to the days when <laughs> they're going to eat a pie mint for four people. I mean, I remember when my brother was that age. And, and they keep saying was... potatoes, yeah. toes, potatoes. <laughs> that did might you, have been your a brother weirder. did that, right? Yeah, yeah he okay. did. Hi, David. Um, there were a couple of, of parts in this where I, my notes were like, yeah, Jake's mom is going to have him committed. In between Tato's at the end and the coming out from behind the fridge with her roach motel stuck in his hair. <laughs> I forgot about that. You're right. Those two things. <laughs> that was so funny. Very frustrating. Oh. I really enjoyed that. Should we talk about some of the 90s stuff? Yep. I really liked how they call Tom at the end on Cassie's dad's cellular phone. Also, they don't seem to be aware of caller ID as a possible thing. Use your but, dad's um, cell phone, not cell phone. Okay, automatic redial is a thing. Oh, yeah. Um, they're taping shows on VCR, and Marco pretends to be a reporter and gets something faxed to him. That is still the same. <laughs> it's the same? That's ridiculous. That's okay. ridiculous. <laughs> what about the thing where Rachel forgot to tape the movie of the week, but Cassie's taping it, so it's yes, okay? They, and they said, I think they still said taped, actually. Because it's I, not DVD everyone has DVR, Jenny. I think maybe they were, no, maybe I don't have DVR. They're recording it in case you missed it, not taping it. <laughs> has anybody seen the 1950s version of the movie The Fly? No. I've only seen clips of it. I've never seen any version of The Fly. Okay, I there is a 1980s version with Jeff Goldblum. Yes, as mm -hmm. they mention in this book. As they mention Quite in this book. Quite a lot, book. yeah. However, as unrealistic as it is for teens in the 90s to mm. all be familiar with this 50s movie. Well, it was on TV last night. <laughs> it is. It would not be on TV in 2010 <laughs> or even in 1996. That is ridiculous. That's I refuse to believe it. It's such a deep cut. <laughs> it must be something that the author's love and they just yeah. wanted to make the reference yeah. i just i couldn't i couldn't <laughs> believe it it's totally insane uh the clip of the the fly guy getting killed is truly horrifying mm -hmm. the the help me bit oh, man. it's yeah. worth looking up i also think um that it's possibly where they got the idea for this book <laughs> like maybe that was why the authors were hammering home so much that like 
you remember that movie? That movie? That's what we're doing here. Do you yeah. remember that movie? And then they get stuck and it's really creepy. <laughs> so they're that probably movie. like after, they're like, oh, what animal should they morph next? And they're like, remember the fly. Yeah. Right. I guess I don't know if there's morphing in the 50s version, but the gradual morph that Jeff Goldblum goes through in the 80s movie is horrifying oh. in the way that all of the morphing <laughs> stuff in these books is and horrifying. And it doesn't just And take it's interesting minutes. that they don't, do they ever reference like the thing? That's the other really bad. I don't bad. know that I would. So far, I don't think they have. So, Gray, when the Yurk is in Jake's head and he's playing his fantasies, does he still say it's like he's playing cassettes? Oh, I don't know, because and, I would have recognized that. And when the memories are transferred, it's like a little bit of data being left behind on a floppy disk. Oh, it's definitely, that was not in here. I would have recognized that. This is something about floppy disk. I'm really glad we're talking about this, because disk. as I was reading this, I thought, there, there's not that much in this that's going to be... That's because it wasn't time. in there. The yurt could play my fantasies as easily as sticking a cassette into a VCR. Oh, okay. They, they changed it to the yurt could play my fantasies as easily as watching a video. Okay. Which is much less specific. Let me find the floppy disk. That definitely is not in there. <laughs> I would have made a note of that. Chapter 24. Okay, I found it. So the original is like a computer transferring a document onto a floppy disk. And this is like a computer transferring a document onto a flash drive. Makes sense. That's a good one. Good I yeah, know. I'm proud of them for that update. Again, <laughs> flash drive, not a thing in 96. I object to the things that are actually anachronistic. Okay. Uh, yeah. I did think it was funny that Marco still got a fax as the reporter. Yeah. <laughs> like, where did you get that fax? Where did they fax it to? Marco, where did, do you have His fax His dad got a new job and bought them a fax. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a fax. He's been saying can't even say it. Yeah, didn't know. He pawned his old one and it's been sitting there. He went back and bought it again. <laughs> He's like, we're going to need this now that I have a job. Yeah, in the Animorphs world, fax machines are really valuable. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, we should definitely mention the new aliens we met, which we had no description of. We didn't see them. We got the Ged description. Yes. The Stram and the Mac, or the Mock, possibly. I, I think Mach. it's not the Stram, it's the Stram. Did I not do enough S? I thought I did a lot of S. <laughs> I thought I did at least three S's worth, but maybe it was You're right, I think I did four S's. The Stram and the Mac. <laughs> I was interested in the Ged. Like yeah. Such a, and three clumsy fingers. Three fingers. Webbed hands or feet. Yeah, not particularly. Poor eyesight. Yeah. It's like halfway on the like evolutionary drawing that you get of like ape to human. Yeah, sort of. Like, sort of still kind of bend over. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not. Um, it's not no, but I was thinking same. like it's more of a like an offshoot almost, right? Because yes, all yes. the way from monkeys, like apes through to humans, you get good eyesight and mm, not yeah. good eyesight in comparison to a hawk, for example. But they're all sort of more evolutionarily well-designed than yeah. the Ged seem to be. I guess I was thinking more, this is like halfway between like a yurk and a human body. Like it's yeah. got some of the abilities, but like not really to the same extent. Yeah, it's a really fascinating co-evolutionary thing too. How did they get to this place? Why the Ged? Yeah, all it sounds this. like they evolved together, but the Ged was still really horrified to have a yurk in its head. Like, it's not mm -hmm. like the Ged evolved to enjoy it or not to care or to not really mm -hmm. have consciousness of their own. Right. This is not the Eloy and the mm -hmm. whatever the other ones are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not true. Presumably, we will get to see all of this in the Yurk Chronicles, which I hope again are <laughs> So speaking of books coming up, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about. Are okay. you going to get to the next book? Mm -hmm. So the last thing I want to talk about is Jake's dream. It hasn't come up, though it's a major part oh, of the book. Yeah. What did you think of it? I Ray? was so pleased when the Yerk said to him, 
That's very metaphorical. <laughs> it's very metaphorical. It's also a direct lift from the Dagobah scene in Star Wars. Oh. But it's also a really great metaphor for what Jake's going through. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was very perfect and very silly. I mean, I, li- I liked it, but but the idea of having these sort of dreams that foreshadow what yeah. is to come. It's like, Jake, really? Cassie, I can see. But like... I, I see it as more... It really... I don't know that he gets it it is very metaphorical and i guess it's good that he doesn't kind of explain it yeah right but he's not worried about he is worried about tom Mm -hmm. but he's also worried about what it will mean for himself if Mm -hmm. he has to Mm -hmm. kill his brother right because that's really that's really what it is it's like he's losing the dream is the fear of losing his humanity because he's becoming too much of this like Mm -hmm. ruthless hunter Mm mm-hmm I really liked how he started to explain it to everyone and then realized that it was a really dumb idea to explain it to everyone and kind of backpedaled. Yeah. That felt very real. Yeah, you don't want to have to explain your dreams to your <laughs> friends. It's no good. But he started. He can't just stop. It's tough. Um, all right. Shall we talk about the next one? The Stranger. Dear Lord. Ah, the Stranger. This book is so good, Gray. Yeah. We haven't hyped you up for books before. <laughs> this one is really good. The next yeah. one's really good. There are a bunch of really good books coming up. I'm very excited to read them. I am, however, once again horrified by the image of the cover. What's the animal on the cover? It's a bear. Rachel yes. is going to have so much fun. Like a koala bear? As a bear. Um, no. Like a grizzly bear. <laughs> I know. <laughs> very exciting. And the, the little catchphrase on the cover is, this time there may be no way out. Ooh. So it seems like you know, Rachel's probably going to get almost stuck in a bear morph. And it's the stranger. Okay. So the stranger is going to be someone who comes to the town and and tries to join their group of friends. And then it turns out uh, that that person is is a controller. And um, so they knew they couldn't trust them, but also they're being sneaky now, these controllers. I don't know. I got nothing. I like it. That's good. That's good. I I feel this one I will not be as successful as I was. It's possible. How does, do you know how the bear fits into it? Well, you know, Rachel needed a new big animal. She got tired of the elephant, which is really too big. A lot. So now she needs, she needs a new one. And a bear seems like a good fit for her personality. Mm. It really does. Yeah. 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 The new cover, the, the holographic one is actually a less terrifying capture of the holograph than some of the other ones have been <laughs> the fly for example horrible um the bear one bad but it's like not that bad <laughs> oh cute. yeah so that's my that's my guess and we'll find out how accurate you are next time on anamorphology the stranger if you want to find us we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on twitter Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. Oh my god, I love it! Had you're a genius? Yes, agreed. <laughs> <laughs>